Oh, good evening, guys. Thanks, uh, Mimi. Thanks, Askin, for reading. I feel like I need to have a pastoral word to feel after seeing those dance moves. <laughs> it's like every invest, these dance moves come out from Phil. Very entertaining. Well, uh, let, me, uh, let me pray, and can I uh, ask you as I pray for God's help uh, to work with me, to work with us one more time in the letter of Hebrews, because there's a lot in this chapter. But let me pray that God might help us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God, and we thank you for how powerfully you've spoken to us in all your word, but particularly as we spent this time in the letter to the Hebrews, and we pray uh, this evening that you help us work one last time in this book to understand the things you say for our good and for your glory. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we know, today uh, we come to the final chapter and the final sermon in the book of Hebrews. And uh, you probably noticed it as uh, Askin read it out, but with this final chapter comes exhortation after exhortation. It's instruction after instruction. I was chatting to Askin briefly before, and he said, oh, it's a quite an interesting chapter, just this thing after thing. It kind of feels like that kind of uh, conversation you have with a grandparent. You know, uh, you're just about to finish school, or you're just about to get married, or uh, the, the, your elderly uh, grandparent is is in kind of their twilight years, and they know they're just about to pass from this life. And so they sit you down and have this conversation with you and then give you these pearls of wisdom. This chapter feels a bit like that. Uh, But of course, this is more than words of a grandparent. Uh, This is the word of God. And at first glance, this chapter does come across like this random collection of instructions, but it's much more than that. Uh, These pearls of wisdom are exhortations for godly living and for right living. And it flows from what we saw last week. Uh, Because if you remember the end of chapter 12 from last week, it finished by reminding the readers that we are part of the heavenly Jerusalem. Uh, We have the kingdom that cannot be shaken. And because of that, what we're to do now is live in thankfulness and service of God. We're to please him with how we live. And what chapter 13 does is give us these instructions on what it looks like to please God in how we live. And uh, today I'm going to do something a little bit different to normal. I'm going to preach slightly different to how I normally would. I'm going to go all American on you. And uh, what I mean by that is I'm going to give you point after point. You know how Americans love you know, the 10 points of how to be the best whatever or the 10 steps to how to make the best cake. Uh, but this is, uh, this is what chapter 13 does. It gives us point after point after point. And so tonight, I've got eight points for us. Please don't be afraid. They're not each as long as my normal three points. But there is eight points, eight pearls of wisdom from God's word. And as we look at each one, we'll see that each point is not isolated from the rest of the letter. It fits in with things we've seen so far. So we're going to jump straight in. Point one, get your outline there, get your Bible open. Point one, instruction number one, and verse one, let's brotherly and sisterly love continue. That's instruction number one. And we know by now in this letter that the familial language has been there since the beginning. Uh, The readers of this letter, they're they're brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, We saw this back in chapter 2, that great verse, chapter 2, verse 11. Jesus himself calls us his brothers, his sisters. Why? Because we have the same and the one heavenly father. And so the instruction here is continue in that brotherly and sisterly love. This is an encouragement to keep going together as the family of God. Uh, You know that old saying, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family? 
There's something that's true about that when it comes to our church family. We didn't choose each other. Do you realize that? It's, it's quite an interesting thing to reflect on. None of us chose each other. Of course, if we had the choice to choose each other, we would because we're all so great. But what makes the church so distinctive compared to other groups that socialize together is how diverse we are. Uh, we don't choose each other, but God chooses us and puts us together in Christ as a family. And as a family, we're to love each other. And it's actually what's made uh, Christians distinctive from the very beginning. There's a church father called Tertullian, and uh, in the second century, he wrote this. It's up on the screen. He said this, comparing the Christians to the Romans uh, around him. He said, look, the pagans say, the, the, the non-Christian Romans say, look how the Christians love each other. For the pagans, the non-Christians themselves, they hate one another. And look how the Christians are ready to die for each other. For the pagans are readier to kill each other. Uh, they were noticeable, the Christians. It's what they did. They loved each other, even though they were these diverse group of people. So that's point one. Let brotherly love continue. Point two and verse two. Have a look at verse two. Don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. And the word there, uh, hospitality, is literally love of strangers. So uh, the beginning instruction was let brotherly love continue, but also don't neglect to love strangers. And we, we need to understand this rightly in its first century context because what's in view here is being hospitable, having a love of strangers who are outside your Christian community, but they're fellow Christians. That's what's in view. So if a fellow Christian was uh, on their travels in that day and they came to your town, then you were to take that Christian in. You were to look after them, care for them, show them love. And that was especially true for missionaries and traveling leaders like the person writing this letter. So if the writer of the Hebrews turned up to town, to, to who he's writing this letter to, well, they were to take him in and care for him. Uh, he was reliant on their hospitality. That's what's on view here. And in verse 2, we get that intriguing verse about angels. And at one level, that verse should not shock us as much as it does. If you're a Christian, you believe in angels. If you're a Christian, you believe in demons. If you're a Christian, you believe in the spiritual realm. That's what it means to, to be a Christian. But in saying that, this verse is most likely pointing back to a story in Genesis 18 with Abraham. So if you remember it, Abraham welcomed strangers and they turned out to be angels. That's probably what's in view here. So don't take this as a command, as in I've got to welcome as many strangers into my home as I can, because if I do, one of them might be an angel. That'd be pretty cool. That's not what it's saying. But again, this instruction for love of strangers is a particular Christian virtue. It's one of the things for me personally, because I, I didn't grow up as a Christian, that when I became a Christian or first went along to church, this was a massive witness to me. I was a stranger in a church. I turned up. I didn't really know anyone. They didn't know me. and They had no reason to welcome me in the, into their homes, but they did. They welcomed me in. They invited me for meals. They showed love towards me. And so can I implore you, show hospitality. Uh, it's a blessing to you to do that. It's a blessing to the person that you're showing that love towards. 
And it's really encouraging that our church does do this. It's a great joy when, when Troy or I or, or Phil or whoever are saying hello to some new person amongst us, a, a stranger in that sense who's come amongst us. And as you chat to them, they go, oh, yeah, I've already been invited out for dinner tonight. Or I've already been invited to such and such's place. Or, yeah, I've already been invited to life because the way we do our life course is about showing hospitality to the stranger. So that's point two. Do not neglect hospitality, the love of stranger. It's what Christians do. Point three and verse three. Remember the prisoners and the mistreated. So look at verse three. Remember the prisoners as though you were in prison with them and the mistreated as though you yourselves were suffering bodily. And for the first readers of this letter, that wasn't some hypothetical. Remember chapter 10. Some of them were put into prison because they followed Jesus. Some had their their possessions and their homes possibly confiscated because they followed Jesus. And the appeal here, it's not simply, I'll give those Christians in prison a, a thought. Or, hey, shoot up a prayer for them, which is a good thing to pray for them. But it's much more than that. See, look again at verse 3. It's imagine you yourself being in prison with them. Imagine you, you yourself suffering in your body like them. This is a remembering that leads to action. And so for those in prison, it would have meant go visit them, appeal for their release. If it's a husband or a father that's been taken into prison because he's a Christian, go care for their family, his family, because he would have been the breadwinner, so support his family. For the mistreated person will then be willing to be mistreated alongside them. Don't be ashamed of them because they've suffered being a Christian. Don't distance yourself from them for your own self-preservation. And we've spoken about this already in our Hebrew series, but the day will come, and in some ways has already come, where mistreatment and imprisonment for the Christian will be our lot. Uh, Os Guinness, an English uh, Christian social critic, writes this. He says, Western society has now entered an ABC moment, an anything but Christianity moment. I think that's true. You see, what will you do when snack, when our church here, is in the news because something Phil has said or Troy has said or I have said or our youth pastor Brendan has said? See, what will you do? It's really easy to imagine the headlines in the news. You know, such and such pastor, and, and, and you know, choose what adjective you want to use there. Such and such pastor discriminates against such and such minority group by his outdated, harmful biblical views. And imagine the comments section on that sort of news article online. It'd be like wildfire, a wildfire you know. How dare they teach that? How can they say such things? Such people need to be thrown into prison. And this has happened for evangelical churches in our country already who've just been preaching the Bible and it's got out that they've preached something unpopular, gets in the news and they, they cop, discrimination, uh, cop persecution for it. You see, when someone at work says to you, hey, that church in the news, isn't that your church? Don't you go to St. George North Anglican? See, what will you say? Will you be mistreated along with those mistreated? Or what if someone amongst us, because they hold to biblical convictions, they lose their job? Or they get thrown into prison because of some anti-discrimination law? Will we be with them, this brother or sister? Will we support them? Will we provide for their physical and emotional needs? Will we give financially to, to help them out because, hey, they've lost their job? Of course, our prayer is that such things will never happen, but history tells us that they have. Uh, As we read this letter to the Hebrews, it happened to them. 
And of course, outside of our Western context, this is the reality for so many Christians. Uh, I must admit, as I read this during the week and prepared for this sermon, I felt a bit rebuked. Uh, There are literally hundreds of millions of Christians, our brothers and sisters in Christ across the world, who are suffering some sort of persecution or imprisonment simply because they follow Jesus. And I don't think this passage is intended to make us feel a personal burden for the the worldwide Christian persecuted church, though I do think we have a duty towards the local and the people we know in the local. But that being said, this made me think of organizations like Anglican Aid or Open Doors and, and, and just kind of wonder myself, how am I going at remembering the prisoners and the mistreated, our brothers and sisters in Christ? Uh, as I actually typed this out, this, this line out in my sermon during the week, I, I did something about it. I went on Anglican Aid website and uh, supported the persecuted church. You see, remember the Christian prisoners. Remember the mistreated. That's point three. Point four, verse four, marriage and sexual immorality. Have a look from verse four. Marriage must be respected by all. And the marriage bed kept undefiled because God will judge immoral people and adulterers. And I need to say up front, uh, please be kind to me. I can't say everything there is to say when it comes to the topic of marriage. Uh, But there's a really important principle here that we need to hear. And this flows on from what we saw last week in that call to pursue holiness. You see, if the readers were to be holy like God is holy... And faithful like God is faithful, then marriage must be respected by all. And that's the married and the unmarried. If you're unmarried, don't tune out because this is for all of us. You see, the married person was to be faithful and not be an adulterer. And the unmarried person was to respect the institution that God has given called marriage and not be sexually immoral. And in case uh, we're ever in doubt of how serious this instruction is, look again at the end of verse 4. See, what does it say? God will judge those who are sexually immoral and adulterers. And this is what we must remember with sexual sin like this. To live in sexual sin is actually to choose personal gratification above your responsibility to God. God calls us to respect and honor his institute of marriage. And too often in our our world nowadays, marriage is seen as something temporary, You know, you opt in for a bit, but you can pull out just as easy as you want to. But no, God designed it to be lifelong. And he designed it to be upheld for the good of those married, for for the wife and the husband. And he designed it to be for the good of the, the children in that marriage. And God designed it for the good of our society at large. And the more we see marriages break down and family units break down, we see the effects in society. But it's not only uh, against God in a sense that we sin, but it's also against others. Because to be an adulterer, to be in an adulterous relationship is actually to cause all sorts of harm to all sorts of people. And if you know of those relationships personally and seen them happen, you know the damage. And to be sexually active with someone who's not yet your husband or not yet your wife, well, for one, God says, no, sexual activities for the marriage bed But for two, if you're not married to that person yet, then that's someone else's wife. That's someone else's husband. And you're supposed to be kept as someone else's wife or someone else's husband. 
Again, there's so much more to say on this. I know it can be complex when we talk about marriage and why sometimes marriages uh, do break and there is divorce. Uh, I've only spoken in general, and the reality is much more complex. But nevertheless, the principle here is marriage must be respected by all. Point five, verse five. Have a look at verse five. The love of money. Your life should be free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have, for God himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And again, this was uh, most likely a live issue for the, for the first readers of this letter. They've had their possessions confiscated, their homes confiscated back in chapter 10. And remember, they, they left their Jewish community. So they, most of the, the readers of this letter were probably Jewish and then heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus and, sort, and worked out, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, and so they left their Jewish communities. But in leaving, they might have left their job. Uh, or they might, have, they might have left their livelihood because their business relied on the Jewish community to, to buy the things they were selling, the produce they were selling. And so imagine in any of those scenarios the temptation to actually say, oh, no, no, I'm not with Jesus anymore because I'd want to keep my job. No, no, I'm not with Jesus actually. No, 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 because I, I want to keep selling you my produce. So it would have been a real temptation for them to choose the path of money, to choose the path of prosperity, to keep their jobs, to keep their good business, rather than stick with Jesus. But the encouragement here was to remember who you belong to. You are God's. See, the quote there in verse 5, look at verse 5, that says, I will never leave you or forsake you, that's actually an echo from Deuteronomy 31. That's where it comes from. And if you remember that part of Deuteronomy, at that time in Israel's history, they had no land. And uh, that time for them, they, they'd been in the wilderness for 40 years by that time. They had no possessions. They, they had no uh, stable land. And Moses was just about to die at the end of Deuteronomy at that point. They're, they're great leaders since the time of Egypt. And so things at that time looked pretty hopeless for Israel. And yet God says to them, no, 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 be content. Be satisfied. What you actually have is your God, and you belong to him. That, that's part of the, the point of verse 6 as well that quotes the Psalms, and it's two separate Psalms that it's quoting. But the point is, when you remember that you are God's, well, you don't need to be afraid of what lies ahead. You don't need to fear what mankind can do to you because the Lord is your helper. And there are two things then being said here. For one, don't let your love of money drive your decision making. And this is, you know, remember invest and the things you, you heard there. But two, remember that you're God's. And so be satisfied with what you have in him. You, you, you're part of the heavenly Jerusalem. There, there are no greater riches than being part of the heavenly Jerusalem. I actually heard of a good example of this being lived out by a Christian through the week. So uh, a Christian brother had made the rank of colonel in the Australian Army. If you know anything about the ranks in the Australian Army, colonel's very high. You have to be very able to get to colonel. And uh, in getting to colonel, it meant he was in charge of over 1,500 soldiers. But this particular brother, rather than enjoying that status of colonel and the pay that went with it, because you get paid really well when you're colonel, he decided to become an army chaplain instead because he wanted to share Jesus with, with the other blokes and the other women in the army that he knew. And because he did that, he copped a $60,000 a year pay cut 
Um, lots of us wouldn't even earn $60,000 a year in our normal job. That was just his pay cut. And he had to get demoted from colonel down to captain, which is about three or four steps down. And why did he do that? Because he didn't care and have the love of money. And because he was satisfied with who he was in Christ. He was satisfied with his status in Christ, not as colonel in this world. But that's point six. So that's point five up to point six now. And point six covers verses seven to 15. So don't worry that we're only up to verse seven. But I've called point six, remember God's word and don't be led astray. Because here there's a do and there's a do not. Let me show you. Please work with me. We're doing well. We're almost there. See, look at verse 7. What are the readers to do? Verse 7, they are to remember their leaders who had spoken God's word to them. That is, they're to remember the time when the gospel of the Lord Jesus first came to them. And they're to imitate the faith of those leaders who brought them that gospel of the Lord Jesus. Why? Because verse 18, uh, because verse 8 Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the point there, it's really simple. Jesus never changes, and because he doesn't change, the gospel doesn't change. And so verse 9, what are you not to do? Because Jesus never changes and the gospel never changes. Verse 9, therefore do not be led astray by various kinds of strange teaching. And what the rest of the verses do from the the middle of verse 9 is contrast one particular kind of strange teaching that had come to them. And it was a strange teaching that added Jewish traditions to the gospel they first received, uh, to the gospel of grace that they knew when the gospel first came. So let me just show you quickly, because on the one hand, in the contrast, you've got the Jewish tradition of foods in verse 9, and then you've got the Jewish tabernacle in verse 10. And then you've got the enduring city here, which is the earthly uh, city of Jerusalem in verse 14. That's all the Old Testament stuff. And the contrast is with the way of grace in verse 9. And the new altar, verse 10, that's not about animal sacrifices, but about Jesus' sacrifice. And then, not the Jerusalem city, but the heavenly city that's to come, verse 14. And so he's contrasting these two different things. But the point of the contrast is really simple. It's what we've heard every single week in Hebrews. In the contrast, he's saying, Jesus is better. The gospel is better. Don't go back to other stuff. Don't let other stuff be added into the gospel. No, no, Jesus is better. Don't be led astray by new and strange teaching. And it's quite apt that we come to this point this week because, again, as Troy already shared, uh, things happened in in our broader church during the week with GAFCON and with the Anglican Church of Australia. And if you got an email, just it's probably worth your reading because it has been in the news, particularly if you read the Sydney Morning Herald. If, it's been, if you read that, it's, it's been in there like almost every day. If you read the Australian, they didn't care at all. Uh, they didn't mention it once, I don't think. Uh, but you see, what they did, or what some have done, is brought in various kinds of strange teaching. It's what they did. It's not the gospel. It's teaching that seeks to fit in with the culture of our day. It's teaching that actually says that something is good when the Bible says, no, it's sin. That's what happened. And Hebrews 13 is saying, no, no, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The gospel does not change. It doesn't 
shift with the cultural tide to become more palatable. The gospel is fixed in the Lord Jesus. So remember God's word and don't be led astray. You're doing well. Two points left and we'll do point seven very quickly. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 and point seven. Verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And this one, it does flow from the verses before as well, because part of that contrast in the last, in the last section was to say, uh, Christians do offer sacrifice. I hope you know that. Uh, we don't offer sacrifices of animals. We don't offer sacrifices for our sins to please God. But we as Christians, we offer sacrifice. Uh, verse uh, 15, we offer sacrifice of praise to God to please him in light of what he's done in saving us through Jesus, his son. And verse 16, it tells us what that looks like. How do you offer sacrifice of praise to God? Do good. Do God's good. And share what you have. And again, this is really relevant for the first readers of this letter because there would have been lots of poor people amongst them. Why would you have poor people amongst you if you're a Christian family? Share what you have. There shouldn't be anyone in need. And some of them might have, again, lost their homes or their jobs. So share what you have. It was hugely important for them, and it's good for us to do the same today. But I want to jump to point eight, last point. Point eight, obey your leaders and submit to them. So look at verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who were given account. And uh, I realize with this one, uh, I'm a little bit biased as I uh, speak on this particular verse, because I'm a leader in God's church. Uh, But as I thought about this during the week, I'm unashamed to do this. Because the means by which God sustains his church and sustains the people of his church is by giving the church leaders. It's part of what God does to grow his church. And of course, God sustains his church by using all of us. We saw that really strongly last week. Remember, strengthen each other's knees when we're feeling weary. It is about all us together. But there's an important responsibility given to leaders. You see, the reason the writer of Hebrews, as a leader himself, wrote this letter is because verse 17, have a look at verse 17 again. He wrote this letter because he's keeping watch over the souls of the people he was writing to. And so the reason the writer of Hebrews has said some challenging things in this letter, and the reason he's pointed the hearers to Jesus over and over and over again is because he's responsible in caring for their souls. And notice the instruction there. It's not just listen to your leaders. It's not simply listen to your leaders, but obey them. Submit to them. And I know that's so very un-Australian to obey and submit, and I know that can be abused, and I know it has been abused by wicked leaders in churches throughout all of of church history, and it's a sad thing. But it is right to obey and submit to godly leaders. Uh, To those, if you have a look again at verse 7, who you see in the outcome of their godly lives because they follow Jesus and teach about Jesus, are actually worthy of being obeyed and submitted to. And just look one more time at verse 17. Because you see there in verse 17, the leader is to lead as one who will give account to God for how he has led. 
Again, that's why the writer of Hebrews had said some hard things. He's taught some really hard things in this letter because he actually loves the people he's writing to. And because he knows that he'll stand before God and God will say to him, how did you go at caring for that flock that I gave to your care? You see, it would have been so much easier for the writer of Hebrews to have written a simple, lovely letter that was full of cuddles and kisses instead of challenges, but he didn't because he loves them and because he loves God. And please know that the leaders in this church, in your church, take this very seriously. We don't do it perfectly because we're of the sinful flesh like everyone else, but we lead as those who ultimately give account to God for how we have cared and loved you, which means we constantly remind you of Jesus. Uh, If you remain at this church all of your life, all you'll ever hear about is Jesus because that's what leaders of God's church to do, point you to Jesus. And it means we constantly point you to the word of God, even when it's unpopular, even when, when it's politically incorrect. I know I've said stuff tonight that if it get, got into the media, it would be really troublesome for me. But we will keep teaching God's word because we're accountable to him. And at times we will have tough conversations with you. Why? Because we love you. Because we are accountable to God for you. And this is a massive responsibility and weight upon your leaders, particularly for Troy, who passes this congregation. And so you should pray for us. You should pray for Troy in particular. See, it's a godly and biblical thing to do. It's what the writer of Hebrews actually asks his readers to do in verse 18 and 19. He says, pray for us. Pray for your leaders. And by praying for and obeying and submitting to godly leaders, it actually helps them to lead with joy. Which again, if you look at verse 17, for your leader to joyously lead you is profitable for everyone because we're all growing to be more Christ-like. But there you have it. There you go. There's my go at being an American for one week. Eight pearls of wisdom from Hebrews chapter 13. There's so much more there, I know. Uh, Look at at more of the detail in your gospel teams. Uh, But I just want to finish by saying, I hope you've enjoyed and been spurred on by our time in Hebrews. It's been hard. Uh, it's been hard to preach, and it's been hard, I know, to listen to at times, but it's been so profitable, I think, for all of us to work together, even though there's been lots of Old Testament background and at times lots of complex ideas. It's been a real blessing. But the message week after week has been really clear, really simple. Jesus is better. Stick with him. Whatever alternate way of life to a life lived with Jesus that you could possibly think of, forget it. Jesus is better. He is the great high priest. He's the once for all sacrifice. He's the one who's able to save you. No one else can. And so whatever temptations there might be in your life to live for career, to live for modern comforts, to give up on Jesus when stuff gets hard, remember if you choose any of those alternate paths, well, you lose what is truly better. And you lose what's truly real because Jesus is king. He reigns. And as we've heard over and over again in Hebrews, if you give up on Jesus, well, then you lose and miss out on a new creation, which is eternally better. I'm going to finish with verses 20 and 21. Look at those verses as I read them out, and I'll finish with this. Now, may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, with the blood of the everlasting covenant, equip you with all that is good to do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight 
through Jesus Christ. Glory belongs to him forever and ever. Amen.